0: This message is entitled, The Witness That Jesus Wants, and if you're not already, at John 17, verses 13 through 19. Go ahead and turn there. I want to say a couple of things before we really get into it. Um, that, one thing is, last week we, we looked at the topic of unity, because that was the part of Jesus' prayer that we, were, that we were reading together So last week was was sort of about what happens in here among among the family, right? And this week, we're gonna be talking more about the outward environment. That is our relationship to the world around us. Jesus wants us to be one, his people. He wants us to be one as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. And we looked at how our unity is an image of the unity of the triune Godhead. But what about... What about our neighbors and coworkers and our family who reject the gospel? Where do we stand with them? According to Jesus, I mean, we, we, we're navigating each one of those relationships the best we know how, but what does Jesus think about our relationship to the world around us? That's what we're looking at this morning. And this text right here, and you probably picked up on this as Andrew read, but this text is the source of that saying be in the world, but not of it. How many of you have heard that saying? That's Most of us have heard that. Be in the world, but not of it. This is where it comes from. It's very biblical. It's, it's, it's right here. It is what Jesus is saying. But unfortunately, this, this little motto, this little Christian motto that you, you see it on a bumper sticker and a you know crocheted in a bathroom or something like that, um, Unfortunately, this is usually taken to mean something like be holier, um, don't listen to bad secular music, um, avoid spending time with the wrong people, You know, be in the world but not of it, stay out of the bars and the casinos. It means something like be more rigidly Christian. At least that was how it felt to me growing up. And I grew up in the church. And so I was around this motto all the time, be in the world, but not of it. So what is Jesus really saying here? It's sort of like, we don't smoke, we don't chew. You just know the, the Baptist creed, right? We don't dance, we don't play cards, all these things. We have a patient in the back the car, Thank you. I'll add that to the, to the list. Uh, it's just good Baptist stuff. And the point, here, the point here is not, it's not that anything goes. That's not what I'm saying. Use your discernment with those things, of course. But what Jesus is saying here is a lot more meaningful and profound than that. That's not all that he means. He means something like this. Just by believing in him, just by believing in the message of the gospel and making that the center of your life, you will be a stranger in this world. You will be a pilgrim, a citizen of a kingdom to which People are naturally hostile. In other words, as the people of God, we are of one mind with each other, but we are not of the world. We're different by design. It's meant to be that way. It's unavoidable. And we'll look at why that's true as we go. So we're nearing the end of Jesus's high priestly prayer, which is all of chapter 17. We're gonna finish it up next week. Um, and this is a crucial part of it. This is a really important part of his prayer, this moment between him and God the Father because what he's doing here is he's praying over the new people of God. That's what he's doing. Now, I want to, to remind you of what's going on here. He's not, he's not standing up anywhere like this in front of a bunch of people, and he's not doing anything outwardly grand or spectacular or glorious. He's with 11 ordinary men, disciples, and they're either reclining after dinner in that same upper room where they've been for an hour or two at this point, or perhaps they're huddled in the coolness of a spring evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not clear where this prayer Takes place, But the point is that they don't look like much. They don't look like much. If you stumbled into this scene, you wouldn't think, you would probably recognize this as a teacher with his followers, but it wouldn't be impressive outwardly if you didn't know who he was. But what Jesus sees as he prays over these men, what he sees is the rest of history laid out before him in these men. He looks at these 11 men and he sees the beginning of something The movement that these men represent—that's—that's—that's going to change the world. And this is—and so you have to—you have to have that impression on your heart to understand how deep and how passionate this prayer really is. Now, like like a lot of Jesus's words in chapters fourteen through seventeen, which is the the farewell discourse and the high priestly prayer, um, this the the. Verses here are a little bit cyclical. They, they circle back on themselves. But we can clearly discern three parts to this text. And the first one is our world, and then our worship, and then our identity. And that's my outline this morning. Our world, our worship, and our identity. So let's start with the world. Let's start with this world that we live in because it's the unavoidable theme of these verses. It really is. He's talking about our lives in this world. And, and so the theme is, the world, with a capital W. This is a place where our lives as human beings unfold, where they, everything happens. It's the theater of the great human drama. That's what we're talking about, the cosmos, the world. And it almost goes without saying that Christians are supposed to be different, but what a curious way to say it. Wouldn't you agree? To say they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, it's a little bit mysterious what he's saying. And also, this is important, there, there is repetition in this prayer and you it, read chapter 17 all in, one, all in one sitting and you'll see, you'll you pick up on a lot of themes repeating themselves, but, but this phrase or this, um, this sentence, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, it's repeated verbatim in the Greek in verses 14 and 16. Verbatim. He says it once, and then he stops, and he says it again. And so it's, it's incredibly important. This, to understand what he means is important here when you see it repeated like that. So I want to I have a show of hands. This is kind of a, a test to see who's awake. How, how many of us in this room are in the world? Raise your hand if you're in the world. Everyone should have their hand up. If you're not, if you're not in the world, where are you? Right? Here we are, here we are. I haven't lived a single day of my life anywhere else, right? We're here in the world. And when I think of it, when I really think of it, I'm blessed to live in the same community where I was born. I was born two blocks away, Fallbrook Hospital. And I do, so I do feel in a sense that I am of this place. Anybody else? It does feel kind of like, I'm from, this is the place that I'm from. If there's anywhere in the world that I am of, it's Fallbrook. And I do feel at home here. So Jesus is saying twice that you and I, if we believe in him, if we are his disciples, we are not of the world and we need to understand what he means by that. And so let's talk about what that means, but also why it's the case, why that is the case. And so we're gonna tackle the first of those questions first. What, what does it mean to be not of the world? You ever seen a movie or somebody walks into town and they and everyone in the, and then the saloon gets real quiet. They all turn around. You're not you're not from here, are you? Right? You've seen that scene in just about every Western movie that was ever made. You're not from around here. It's kind of like that. Okay. In the past, this is important for us because of the world we live in today. In the past, before automobiles, um, when most most people spent their whole lives in the same place. They were born, they lived their duration of their life, and they died in the same town. They had a stronger sense of what it means or meant to be a stranger. You can imagine that. Uh, But there is a difference, and there always has been a difference between a stranger in the sense of someone that you just haven't met before and a stranger in the sense of someone whose life, whose way of life is so totally unfamiliar to you that it's hard for us to relate to it. Do you see the difference? One is, one is just sort of, this person's like me, but I haven't met them. That's, that, we, we call that a stranger, but there's another sense in which this is a strange person. Jesus is dealing with the second one of those, okay? When he says that we're gonna be not of this world, he means something like that. So, Here's an important thing for us to keep in mind as we go this morning. Human nature is exquisitely sensitive to differences in others. We are. It's the first thing we pick up on when we meet somebody new, how are they different than us? And, and human nature is also notoriously intolerant of truly strange people. We're allergic to them. And, and there's reasons for that. It has to do with safety. It has to do with mostly with safety. Who is this person? Can I trust them? All kinds of questions that come rushing in immediately. So again, we don't live in a traditional society. We live in a world where we're constantly meeting strangers in both senses. Increasingly in California, we're running across really strange people, aren't we? <laughs> and that's fine. And God will, God will see us through that. So to feel the full impact of this, I, want, I just wanna call up one image, which is, Imagine the, the Spanish explorers sailing through the Caribbean for the first time and meeting the Arawak Islanders in the Caribbean. And, and there's uh, the two historians, Peter Carroll and David Noble, have, have written about this, this encounter. So imagine that the, the light-skinned European sailors come down off of their huge ships First of all, these these islanders have never seen ships this big. They're like, they might as well be the space station coming to their island, right? And, and they come down off of their huge ships and they're carrying brightly colored fabrics with dye that's that you can only find in Europe, maybe China. They have glass beads. They have other sort of pretty European wares and they have all of this to trade with. But then they draw their swords. This really happened. They draw their swords, not to use them, but just to, just to show them to their new, their new clientele, if you will. And then this happened, the, the young Arawak men who'd never seen a sword before, they reached out and they took the swords by the blades and they cut themselves and they're bleeding from their hands. Now, there's two ways to look at that. There's two ways to look at it. It's From our view, look at these primitive people who don't even recognize the right end of a the sword. There's a second way to look at it, which is their view. What strange creatures have come to us with such dangerous tools strapped to their waist, right? You can see it from that perspective too. Christopher Columbus said, this is a direct quote in his writings somewhere. He he said, they believe very firmly that I, with these ships and these people, came from the sky. So the islanders didn't even think that the explorers were human beings. And the Europeans, as we know, they returned the favor and they said, look at these primitive people. They might not even be human. Maybe subhuman. The point is this. Whenever indigenous people make contact with emissaries from other kingdoms, there is immediately this evaluation of one another's humanity that takes place. And it usually leads to violence. Okay? So here's an even better example for our purposes. What happened, some of you are alive, what happened to all of the Japanese people in California after Pearl Harbor? what happened not just in california all over the country they, but there were a lot in california and they were rounded up they were arrested they were transported to um, to compounds where they couldn't leave they were incarcerated this was 125 uh, something like 125,000 japanese people who were living here in this country um, and it was President Franklin Roosevelt who signed the order. And there were something like 70 of these compounds where they were, they were in prison for the duration of the war. Now, for years, the most, the vast majority of these Japanese people were good, upstanding citizens, okay? The point wasn't that they were all overnight just criminals. They were good citizens. And they, were, they had been living peaceably in the United States. But something happened, something momentous Happened, and suddenly they were estranged from their host country. You see that? Americans didn't trust them anymore. And this happens every time two countries go to war. They're expatriates, you gotta get out of Dodge. This happens every time. They were in, here's the thing, these Japanese people were suddenly, when when World War II started, the Japanese people who were here, they were in the United States, but they were no longer of the United States. You see that? That's exactly what Jesus is telling us to expect in this world, that something momentous is about to happen that makes his disciples sort of like kind of dubious, untrustworthy, suspicious people in a world that's now in spiritual conflict with their king. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying that the disciples are gonna feel this estrangement for the rest of their lives. And so are we. And it's a feature of the Christian life. Being set apart as God's people like this will always invite hostility in a fallen world. And unfortunately, this isn't what we think we're, going, we're signing up for when we become Christians. Um, we would like to be marked for a life of ease and comfort and security in this world. Instead, we're marked for hostility. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the mark that God puts on his chosen people, it just looks to the world like a target. That's what he's saying. So Jesus, this is the first point in your sermon notes. Jesus does not remove, remove us from the world because he wants, to, he wants us to be in contact with it as witnesses to the gospel. But he also makes us strangers here and tells us to expect hostility. Now, opposition and disrespect Suspicion, they're all they're all features of the life of discipleship in this world. Very clearly, there's nothing to indicate differently in, in the in the Bible. So let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. Since the world hates Jesus, he says, hates Jesus and his people, how are we to live in that world? Especially in times when the world is becoming arguably more hostile to Christianity, to the gospel the church how are we to live when we encounter hostility are we to return fire are we supposed to give them a taste of their own medicine Um, or should we circle the wagons and cut ourselves off even further from the people who hate us paul gives the answer in romans um, 12 verses 14 and 18 he says bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, it won't always be possible. But if it's up to you, he says, choose peace. Now let's talk about, now let's talk about why. Why this is true, that we're strangers. We're, we're not of this world. Let's talk about why. Here's another way of saying it. Jesus is saying that his people will be treated like an invasive species. Anyone have invasive species in your backyard? I do. We're going to be treated or considered like an invasive species by the rest of the world, but why? What is it about Christians that makes us so strange to everybody else? And what is Jesus's solution? What kind of protection does he provide for us in the midst of a hostile world? Well, look at verse 17. His protection is to pray for this. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, what kind of protection is that? Information? Our protection in this hostile world is is a message? It's a word? So... That exposes that feeling. If you share that feeling, that, that exposes that the, there's a significant. It's subtle, but there's a significant misunderstanding about this line of Jesus's prayer that we need to that we need to address. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We read the word truth, and we immediately think of the mind, don't we? Truth is something intellectual. The Enlightenment has taught us to think of truth as a as an intellectual category exclusively, the truth. Think of the mind, the intellect, our conscious thoughts, our personal philosophy, the things, our, the parts of our worldview that we're aware of, that we can control to a certain extent. The, the truth that Jesus is talking about, though, is not a truth that only affects our minds. It doesn't just fiddle with our opinions, and our intellectual commitments, that's not all. That's not all. The truth that Jesus means here, when he says, sanctify them in the truth, it's a truth that reaches all the way down to the heart and it changes our worship. And that is significant because what we worship is the most significant thing about us. Let me show you this from the text. Look in verse 14. We're dealing with the theme of God's word. In verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word. What does that mean? Jesus has given us the word of God. He makes it sound like he's hand delivered the word of God, and he has. That is what he's saying. But I want you to think about this. God has never had any trouble getting his word across to his people. He spoke many, many thousands of words to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, didn't he? He had prophets who could give his word to his people. That was their job. And he knew how to do it. And he's been giving his own word to his people for centuries at this point. So why would Jesus say that he's given his disciples the word of God as if he's done something different and better than the prophet's? Do you, you see the tension there? This is kind of a subtle point. Jesus says, I've given them your word. Personally, I have come and given it to them. What is he talking about that's different than, what, I mean, why, couldn't, why isn't this a word that God could just speak through a prophet like he's been doing, is the question. So what is this word that Jesus is talking about? I think there's three things that we could understand as the word of God that Jesus has given. And, and the first one, obviously, is his teaching. Every He's, he's, he's God in the flesh. And so every word that he spoke as a teacher came straight from the throne of God. So his teaching was the word of God in that sense, but also his life. Remember verse one of chapter one, the way that John starts in the beginning was the what was the word. What is the word in John 1, 1? It's Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate word, the logos, Of God and He has given us Himself. And that so His life is the second thing, His teaching, His life. But then most importantly, the centre of everything that He came to do and to be, His death and Resurrection. The whole truth about God and about us is revealed in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. So, the word of God that Jesus had to personally deliver, that God couldn't just say from heaven, but he had to come down and and act it out, that word is the gospel. It's specifically referring to, to Christ's death and resurrection. Because the word that Jesus could only deliver in person is himself and his death for us. It says, In the beginning. Was the word, and so you can see how that changes this verse. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When you read this verse, you need to hear this in your head. You need to hear the gospel is truth. There's a whole category. Uh, There's a there's a word group in the New Testament of when, like the Apostle Paul, for example, when he writes about the word. The word, We're, evangelicals tend to think, this is the word of God, he's talking about the Bible. And he is, but this, every time you come across Paul or someone else saying the word of God, the, the, another one is the word of Christ, he means the gospel. Because the gospel is the subject of the Bible, do you see? So they're talking about that specific thing. You should think, you should sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The gospel is the truth that he's talking about. Christ's death and resurrection is truth. Now, if Jesus isn't just talking about generic Bible knowledge, if he doesn't just mean that we need to memorize all the verses and know all the doctrines, then what he really means, what he really means is something like this. As your people see me nailed to the cross, and bleeding for their sins. Let them see once and for all the kind of merciful God you are. Let them see all the ugliness of their sin pressed like thorns into my scalp. Let them see my innocence chained and whipped and pierced for the undoing of their guilt. Let them hear me being mocked and understand that I knew all along it was gonna come to this. As they watch me die slowly, Father, let them know that all my life I have been looking forward to this day if only because they will finally realize how much I love them. People, that is the truth. That is the only truth that will change you. That is the truth that sanctifies the people of God. Because... We don't just have the opinion that Jesus is our savior. When we see him on the cross like that, we know and we are in the moment worshiping him as, the, as God. That is the word of God that is truth. It's Jesus bleeding on the cross for you. See, God's word can never be thought of as just merely a book that informs us. If that's all it is, look, there's lots of scholars in the world who know this book even better than me and they don't believe the gospel. It's true, it's possible. It's possible to know this thing as words ink on paper and not as a living reality in your heart. We have to realize that God's word is a message that changes us. And it reorders the deepest commitments of our hearts. And when that happens, there are two things that Jesus is talking about, two things that happen. The first is that you become undeceivable. And the second is that you're, you're estranged from the world. So the, the first, you become impervious to Satan's deceit. Jesus asks very specifically in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Leave them here. They belong, They, well, they're supposed to be here, but they don't belong here. That's, the, that's what he's saying. He says, I do ask that you keep them from the evil one. Now remember that the evil one, and this is why, he, this is why the two verses later he says, sanctify them in the truth because Satan, who is he? Deceiver. He's the deceiver of the whole world, it says in Revelation 12, 9. Jesus himself said of Satan, the devil, it says when he, when he lies, he's just speaking out of who he is because he lies all the way down. He's a liar and the father of lies. That's all he is. It's just, he's just one big, grand deception. That's who the devil is. And so he says, keep them from the evil one, sanctify them in the truth. You see it? That's how we're kept from the evil one. We're sanctified in this truth. Apart from faith... People are naturally gullible to Satan's lies. We are, we're susceptible, we're vulnerable to believing. Naturally, we believe what Satan is selling 100% of the time in our flesh. But when you're experiencing for yourself that God is merciful, not just in in the theological sense, but merciful to you, merciful to you, when you're experiencing that, And that God is compassionate and kind and you know because you're experiencing his compassion and his kindness. There's no room in your heart for that old lie. God doesn't really love you. That's Satan's lie. He doesn't love you. He only loves himself. That's the lie. There's no room in your heart for that lie when you're experiencing it because you know it's false. So to be set apart or sanctified in the truth is to be undeceivable in that way. And I think you would agree that what a gift, what a gift that is, to really know what is true about God because you're living it. The second thing is that when we see the truth in this way, when we, we believe the gospel, we're we're worshiping Jesus, we're worshiping him. And our worship is the thing that makes us strange and suspicious to the rest of the world. It is the thing that makes us strangers in this world. Remember, I said that we would get to the bottom of why it's the case that we're not of the world. This is why, because we don't worship the same things. We We don't worship in the same way. The truly intolerable differences between people have always, ever, only had to do with worship. Think of the wars that just haven't stopped. I mean, it's not just exclusive to Islam, but Islam is a good example because they've been at war with everybody who doesn't worship like them since the beginning. Haven't they? Just one long, irresolvable conflict. It has to do with worship. And Christians are people who do not worship like anyone else in the world. And this is a problem. This is a real problem. We don't worship idols. I'm not talking about totem poles or little statues that you put on your mantle. I'm not talking about those, those idols. We don't, we don't worship the idols of ambition or success or money or power. Everybody's worshiping one of those or, Multiple. People whose worship are, is so alien and so strange in this world, they're never going to find their true home here. The world is supposed to be a hard place for us to live as disciples of Jesus because the world doesn't reward faith. It rewards performance and success and aggression and power. Those are the things that get rewarded in this world. Jesus tells us to run the other way from those things. In other words, strange worship is always offensive because it challenges what is most sacred and precious to us. When your heart is caught up in success and you think that, and you're worshiping success and you think that if you succeed in life, you will then be, you will be somebody. You'll really be acceptable. You really really have arrived. It will satisfy your heart. And the person next to you doesn't, give a hoot about success, you know what's happening there? They're giving the lie to the central thing in your life. They're saying that, they're, they're exposing you to the possibility that the thing that you're worshiping is, is, a, is hollow. And that's why we can't tolerate people who worship differently than us. Old Testament idolatry is just a picture of what we do inside now. You go cut somebody else's idol down in the Old Testament, that's an act of war you do it today, inside, it's still an act of hostility. You see? This is everything. What you worship determines who you are. That's it. This is the second point in your notes there. The message of the gospel is what separates the people of God from the natives of this world, if you will, and protects us from deception at the same time. It's the gospel. In fact, if you want you could underline the word, the, the phrase, your word is truth and write the gospel next to it. I would love it if you would do that. So let's, let's talk about our third section. Let's wrap it up by talking about our identity because this is what, this is where we end up. This is where Jesus leaves us at the end of this passage. Hopefully, hopefully if all of this has made sense so far, we're starting to realize what's, what's really going on here. Jesus is praying over 11 men who are the beginning of a new people group that will revolutionize life on this earth. He's praying over 11 ordinary men. Judas is gone now, so there's not 12. There's only 11. And they are going to change everything. And he's praying over them. He's not just asking God To cheer up a handful of victims of the world's bullying. That's not what he's asking. The kingdom of heaven is on earth. And these men are the first citizens, and nothing will ever be the same. And this is what he's praying about. Look at the words he uses there towards the end sanctify them, that means set apart. And then in the ESV, he uses the word consecrate in verse 19. I consecrate myself. In the Torah, these words, these were the words that God used when he designated Israel and the Levites as his own special people. This was, his, these were the, the, this was the language in the Torah for consecrating Israel and specifically the priesthood for himself. Jesus is using language for the creation of a people, a nation, and a priesthood. And wouldn't you know it, later on, decades down the road, Peter would write this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Jesus is saying, just like, just like Moses had consecrated his people And the priesthood, centuries ago, Jesus is consecrating a new people, a new priesthood. He's he's praying over the creation of, of a brand new humanity in the midst of the old fallen world, which will be hostile to this new man. The gospel is the means that Jesus is going to use to accomplish this. And he consecrates himself, by the way. He says, for this sake, I consecrate myself as the new member, the the first member of this new creation, the firstborn from the dead, Paul writes. By the way, it should sound a little strange to you. For their sake, I consecrate myself. You didn't consecrate yourself unless you're God. So this is another claim to divinity right here. Jesus is saying, I have the authority and I'm consecrating myself because I'm God. Here's the point. If, if your hope, if you put your faith in Jesus and, and you have trusted him as your salvation, you're no longer a native of this world. That's what it means. You belong to an eternal kingdom and your citizenship in that kingdom makes you different because of what you worship. You don't have to try and make yourself different by abstaining from tobacco or bad company or fill in the blank. It's a feature. You can't avoid it. It's a feature of the new life that you have in Jesus. When people say, you don't belong here, well, they're right. That's what it means to be not of this world. So let me, let me leave you with this question. This is, our, this is a, good, a good thing to ask. It's a reasonable question. Why are the disciples not taken out of the world for safekeeping? He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And if we were hearing him pray that, we might think, oh man, that's what I was hoping he would ask. I was hoping that he would ask God to take, take us out of here, take us out of this broken world. It's hard to live here. In fact, this is one of the reasons, this right here is one of the reasons that, that I won't teach the rapture. Because Jesus himself says, I don't, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That's a separate thing. By the way, if you want to know more about that, come to my lecture tomorrow, Revelation. No, 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 no. The only answer, why would Jesus say, I specifically don't ask, I want you to leave them here. Well, the only answer to that is that Jesus is not abandoning the world. He's renewing it. He's not abandoning the world. If he was, he would take his people out of here on the life ship, the, the, the lifeboat, right? But he's not doing that. He's renewing the world and he's going to use his people in possession of his gospel as the means of renewing and, and transforming this old fallen world. The disciples of Jesus, in other words, are, were no longer indigenous to this world because we're brand new creatures. We're a new type of human being from the inside out, bearers of the higher and the purer life of Jesus. That's true about you if you believe the gospel. That is the truth of who you are if you're one of Jesus's disciples. Jesus' disciples. Jesus didn't die to give us a religious social club with chapters in every town. That's not why he died. He died to create a new people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that's what you're a part of. So here's a challenge for us today. Here's Here's our challenge. Every one of the people in this room, I think it's safe to say, have received another valuable citizenship, perhaps the most valuable in this world today. What is it? You're Americans. I'm speaking to a room full of Americans. I'm not speaking to Afghanis or Iraqis or Venezuelans or people from any number of broken countries where it doesn't hit the same to say, that's my country. We're Americans, right? And that means something. For nearly 250 years, that's meant something. It's been, there's value and there's significance in that. So this is a challenge this is a challenge because Jesus is saying specifically that the citizenship that he purchased with his blood needs to mean more to you than any other thing about who you are. It, 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 he means it, he means for that to be the case. There are any number of things that each of us can hold on to as who I am profession, achievements our possessions, our status. But all of those things are of the world. And you leave them behind when you follow Jesus. What will you stand on? What will you stand on when you leave this world behind? And I mean when you die. What will you stand on? When you arrive, when you arrive at that customs window in the sky, you, it won't even occur to you to say, I'm an American. Think about it. That's not, that won't get you in. It's not about getting in, by the way. It's just a word picture. It's, that's, not, that's not what you're gonna stand on when you see God face to face. You'll only have one thing to plead, which is your citizenship in God's country. The citizenship that was purchased with Christ's own blood. Let's pray.